Our our scripture for today comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 3-ish to uh, 14. (laughs) It's the 3B. Some people do B. There's not a, a B in it. It's just like halfway through. That makes sense. Here are these words. If anyone else has reason to put confidence in physical advantages, I have any more. I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews with respect to observing the law. I am a Pharisee. With respect to devotion to the faith, I harassed the church. With respect to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison to the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have lost everything for him, but what I lost I think of as sewer trash. This again is a a paraphrase of a a word you can't say in church that's in the Bible. Um, So that I might gain Christ and be found in him. In Christ, I have a righteousness that is not my own and that does not come from the law, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. It is the righteousness of God that is based on faith, the righteousness that I have come from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. It includes being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. It's not that I have already reached the goal or I've already been perfected, but I pursue it so I may grab hold of it because Christ grabbed hold of me for just this purpose. Brothers and sisters, I myself don't think I've reached it, but I do this one thing. I forget about the things behind me and reach out for the things ahead of me. The goal I pursue is the prize of God's upward call in Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was a kid, before uh, Wikipedia, I loved learning sports records. And, and remembering them and, and saying them back and forth about who, who had the most home runs, who had the best batting average, who had the, the most yards rushing in a year. Um, in, the, in the pros, it's still Eric Dickerson, Sealy native, who was given a car by Texas A&M, but decided to go to SMU. Anyway, um, I loved the Olympics and finding out who, who, who won. I actually had, we had a neighbor growing up who won the Olympic gold medal in shot put in 1968 and uh, got a silver in 64. And, um, and he, he had them in his, his drawer, his dresser drawer, his gold medals. Um, and it was, it was so neat to have that connection, to be, be so close to someone who was the best at the world at something. He, he at one point, Randy, um, Randy Matson, he broke his own world record by a meter. Um, he was so good at the shot put. And it was just like, that's so cool. It's just right down the block, Mr. Matson. He had a world record. A lot of aspects in life include a lot of people um, trying to strive for a few spots. It's like, it's, you know, people are picking colleges right now, and most colleges nowadays, it's, there's a lot of kids applying for a few spots. They try to be selective, and then like getting entry-level jobs, it's a lot of people applying for a few spots. It's a bunch of, you know, 22-year-olds who are asked to have three to six years of work experience um, to apply for a job. Last two weeks ago, we heard from Mr. Biankowski, Steve, um, talk about his application to be a rescue diver in the NYPD and how there were 32 people for four slots, but they only accepted two. <laughs> they, were, they were looking for the, for the best. They were looking for the strongest, the fastest, those who could do all these things. So what happens 
to those of us who aren't the best, who aren't the strongest, who aren't the fastest, who aren't the smartest, who aren't picked first for every game. Where's the space for everyone else? Today we're going to show the last clip from the movie The Rescue. And it's going to, uh, I think it's it's the longest clip I've shown so far. I think it's about five minutes. And it's when they're, they're trying to get the last kid out. So that graph is in the slide. Okay, good. But the audio. Gonna. And I thought the smallest child had already gone, but the last kid to walk down the hill was this boy, Mark, who was 29 kilos. Mark was by far the most small-faced, petite kid of them all. We looked at each other and thought, that mask isn't going to fit him. We can't leave him here today and come back tomorrow because I don't think there's going to be a chance tomorrow. We tried the mask. We tried packing stuff around, and putting the hood under it, trying to tighten it up as tight as possible so we're literally crushing the kid's nose. But there was no way it was going to keep water out. For some reason, we'd brought this more leisure-type full-face mask too compared to the other ones that looked like a little pink toy. And when we tried cranking the straps down on this leisure mask, the seal collapsed and then water entered. So we backed it off, tried again, and it collapsed again. It just sat on his face and you knew that if it took a sideways knock, that would have been curtains. Jason, I could see, was very unhappy about it. the very last child and I'm thinking poor Jason you know the last kid that's going to be the one to drown and uh, Jason's going to have to deal with that. That you go so slowly so carefully. We were waiting and waiting and Chris didn't come so that was quite anxious. Despite sweeping around in the water to try and find this rope, I couldn't find it. I kept finding an electrical cable. That electrical cable probably goes back to chamber three. So I started following it. After, I guess what was 10 minutes, I popped up into a chamber. I was confused. I was expecting to surface in chamber three, where the rescue workers were, but I surfaced in a chamber that was empty. Hello? 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 If I've managed to find an unknown chamber completely off the main route, nobody's gonna come and find us. I surfaced in the last air chamber with the child and immediately in front of me there was this apparition of Chris and there was a child at his feet and the immediate thought was, we've lost one of them. When I saw Jason, I realised I'd gone backwards in the cave. I realised I was back in chamber four. Jason headed into the final section and then Harry appeared. 
I said, look, mate, you just stay here, gather your thoughts. I'll take the kid out the last bit. You come through when you're ready. I heard that humming of the pump. I knew I'm nearly at chamber three. Just before I handed the kid over, I got a lump in my throat because I knew he was going to be out alive. Okay, three, two, one. When we heard Harry was bringing Chris boy forward, I was confident in Harry and pleased for him as well that he was able to experience that. There's these big guys from the US Air Force there grabbing the kid off you, whisking him into a stretcher and off up the hill, and then he's just gone. Suddenly the mood was just amazing. Yay! Passing around a bottle of Jack Daniels. Whoa, there's a cut before that. Do, 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 do. We gotta, we gotta stop the clip. Watch out, watch out. Do, do, do. <laughs> My friends, we are finishing our series on the rescue, on how God rescues us, on looking at the language of salvation in a fresh way and realizing that salvation can sometimes be stiltified and calcified in, in Christian language. And it's not... Salvation is not a state you are in. You're, you're saved from something and you're saved for something. We are rescued by God. We talked about what salvation is. We talked about how we are in need. If we don't realize our need for God, we can't admit to being rescued. We will continue to push away grace again and again. We, we've been watching this movie, The Rescue, about the 2018 Thai cave disaster because of the connection that, that these boys, these 12 boys who were trapped in a cave were in absolute need. They could not save themselves. And even when, if they tried, they would have gotten in their own way because they did not know how to scuba dive for two hours in a cave um, in the ways that they could have been their own worst enemies, just like we can sometimes be our own worst enemies in accepting grace in the ways that we can rationalize our own actions, our own behaviors. Today, we're going to look at who gets to be saved, but who deserves to be saved. In the movie, the last kid left was the smallest kid by far, and the standard mask didn't fit. And it's like in the, in the interview, they talk about how we just happen to have this leisure mask with us. Um, how amazing to have, to have that pink, the pink mask um, that barely fits. And one of, even when they were saying about the water um, not being able to, the seal was not tight. And they had to, because they had to carry the kid down upside down um, to keep the oxygen in that kind of way. But so delicately, um, the mask that barely fit, the child that was barely able to get out. They did what they had to do to not leave any kid behind. Sometimes, though, in, in small groups like this, like 12, 15 people, it's easier not to leave people behind. When you're, um, you know, I've worked in a number of different preschools and like Beloved um, as a pastor and how the teachers do head counts a lot. Always got to make sure those three-year-olds are there. It's like, do we have 10? Okay, we got 10. I don't know which 10, but as long as there's 10 heads, we're good. <laughs> we got 11, that's okay. It's more than 10. <laughs> we're okay. If it's like nine, okay, I got to find someone. Who do I have to find? Um, it's easier. If, if you had, if one person was responsible for 100 kids, it'd be a little trickier um, in that 
that kind of sense. It's hard to, to manage in our heads. If you're, if you're going on a vacation with your family, it's easy to keep track of the people in your immediate family, but as it, the group gets bigger and bigger, it's hard to keep track of them. And it's, it's like the old joke that um, if you're being chased by a grizzly bear, you don't have to be faster than the grizzly bear, you just have to be faster than the slowest person in your group. Um, and then you'll be okay. Who gets to be saved? Who deserves to be saved? We see a familiar version of who deserves to be saved in this letter from Paul to the Philippians when he describes, he basically gives his CV, his resume, um, about all the awesome things that he has been able to do. As if he were applying for a job. How much he deserves God's Love. Look at how awesome I have been. You know, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. The law, I'm blameless. I have persecuted the church as one should. And he does all the things right. But even after doing all the things right, he cannot save himself. He cannot save himself. Last week when we talked about how we are saved. We shared the different models of salvation in the Bible, how there's a lot of models in the Bible before we get to Jesus, like the, the model of Noah and the ark is a, is a story of salvation. And there's a lot of people left out of the ark. There's a lot of animals left out of the ark. They kind of wish they were part of that pair that made it on the boat. Um, other models in, in the Old Testament that leave a lot of people out. To use the example of the parable of the lost sheep, all of those models would have been happy keeping the 99 sheep. They wouldn't have gone and looked for the one. It's inefficient to do that. They, it's, you know, 99 out of 100 is a pretty good success rate. It's inefficient to waste your time and leave your place and go look for that one. You got to be reasonable. You got to be reasonable. You gotta be reasonable. In the late 18th century, the East India Company was one of the largest organizations in the world. It was the largest private company in the world. A lot of like, modern business comes about because of uh, the paperwork that the East India Company had to do to manage um, an empire in India from a street in London. Uh, but one of the things that happened was they even started their own university just for East India Company personnel. And one of the professors at the East India Company University was a man named Thomas Malthus. Now, Thomas Malthus was a priest in the Church of England. He was also an early practitioner of what we now call statistics and econometrics. And so he started, he did some statistical analysis. And one of the things that he came up with was that he realized that um, resources grow at an arithmetic rate. And so, you know, you plant a tree and it grows steady. If it'll survive, it'll kind of grow in a steady and sustained manner. But humans grow in an exponential rate. And so if a, a couple has four kids and they have four kids, it kind of expands pretty dramatically. And this is uh, the chart that's in there kind of shows it. And this is what Malthus would talk about, is that the population grows in an exponential way and food only grows in an arithmetic way. And eventually you get to a point where there's a resource constraint because of population. Um, and so there, there's too many people and not enough space. There's not going to be enough space for people. So people should stop having kids. That was his, his logic. And that logic has been around for a long time. People have said again and again, there's too many people. It's, it's selfish to have kids, all these kinds of things. 
It happens usually once a year, there is like some random person will make an argument, like have an editorial in the Washington Post or the New York Times saying there's too many kids, stop having kids, kids are evil. And then there's a big hubbub of all the different pundits saying this is great, this is horrible, on and on and on. So this, this happens from time to time. And it all comes back to this guy, Thomas Malthus, in uh, at the East India Company University. Now the problem with this logic became quickly apparent inside the East India Company. And so it has to do with the fact that the East India Company was, was created to exploit the treasures and resources of India. Um, they didn't really intend to become an empire. They, they did. Um, it's a really, there's a great book called The Anarchy that's about the history of the East India Company. I, I really recommend. But um, it was not an intention for these guys in London to be like, let's take over all of India. Um, but it, they kind of fell into it and got, got richer and richer and richer. But the point of the company was not to better the society. It was to give profit to the shareholders of the East India Company. And Eventually, in 1856, the company was taken over by the English crown, but they still had the same, it was the same workers, they just worked for Victor Queen Victoria as opposed to the company and did the same logic. And then in the late um, 19th century, there was a tremendous famine. There was a tremendous famine all over India because of an El Nino season that didn't go away. And all the, the land that the, the company ruled and the, the crown ruled at that point was pretty much all for, for cotton or, um, yeah, it was, it was mostly cotton. It was mostly cotton because, in, especially in that point, they were trying to replace the southern cotton supply. And I'll, I'll get to the point. This is a long story. <laughs> but uh, but there, was a, there was a decision made by the administrator of the English crown that the fields, even though they knew a drought was coming, the fields needed to maintain cotton. They should not grow food. Uh, because that's what the contract was, because it was more important for, to feed the factories cotton in Manchester than it was to feed the people of India. And they made a choice about who deserved to live and who deserved to die. Over 30 million people died in the famines um, in 1872 through 1878. 30 million people. Um, because of a decision of an administrator who decided who deserves to live and who deserves to die. And the logic of, of Thomas Malthus that again and again has, has propped up over and over again since he, he came up with this is that, yes, there are resource constraints in our world, but when we get to the point of choosing who deserves to live and who deserves to die, we all, humans always choose people who are different. They always choose people on, away from them. Nobody ever is like, you know what, I'm going to choose myself to, to not be here and be a resource constraint. That doesn't, or my children. It's always someone else's children. Even Paul was not good enough. You can, you can change the slide from this, Kaylee. It just makes me depressed. Um, even, even Paul wasn't good enough. He, wasn't, he didn't fit the mark. He says in, in the letter to the Romans, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In this world, there is scarcity. There, there are limits. It's true. I, I, I disagree with, with Thomas Malthus and, and his inheritance, inheritors of that logic that, that population control is the one thing we could do. But there are limits to this world. There's limits to the land. This is why, you know, real estate is called real estate. You, it doesn't grow. You can't, there's no more. We're not going to get more land. There's limits to the land. There's limits to how much food we can grow. There's limits to our water. No one's way of life can last forever. 
Seasons change. More is not being made. And complaining about it doesn't change it. Um, God very rarely in the Bible says, you know what you should do is complain more. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are definitely complaints without scripture, but that's not one of those things. It's like, and blessed are those who complain because they will get their way. That's not in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, though, we get this kind of contrast between the complaint and the prophet. And the complaint, the complainer, is someone who's basically trying to go back to when they were more comfortable. And the prophet is trying to see the world as God sees it and to, to look out and see the kingdom of God here and now. God does, not gift, God does not give the gift of complaint, but the gift of prophecy. And prophecy, not just seeing, like, not the, the seeing for the future. Prophecy is not just about predicting the future, but seeing as God sees, seeing the world as it really can be, viewing the world under the kingship of Christ. And in that kingdom, there is no us and them. In that kingdom, there is no scarcity for Christ's love. There is no limit. There is no last person who's not going to get Christ's love. There is no point after which you are no longer Worthy. Your worthiness and your inclusion in God's kingdom have nothing to do with what you've done. As an early Christian wrote, no one, however weak, is denied a share in the victory of the cross. No one is beyond the help of the prayer of Christ. His prayer brought benefit to the multitude that raged against him. How much more does it bring to us who turn to him in repentance? You are already Loved. There is no difference that God despises. You are going to make it out of that cave alive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that who believes in him? Not who deserves to believe in him. Not who is raised in the right place with the right people, but whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. My brothers and sisters, in this season of Lent, may you look at the world, may you look at yourself and your own life, not with what you lack, with what you're disappointed in, but with what you have in Christ. You are loved. You are forgiven. Those, those things about you that you do not like, that you wish to hide, you can let them go. May you see yourself in the abundance that Christ sees you. May you see yourself in the overflowing joy that you are delighted by God. You are a delight to God. May you prepare your hearts for Holy Week, knowing that Jesus leaves no one behind, not even a sheep, not even you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your discernment in loving us. Even when we don't deserve it, help us to humbly accept your grace and humbly offer mercy the same way we have received it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.